Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You're listening to Griefcast with me, Carrie Lloyd. How do we grieve for someone? How does it change and evolve as we get older? My dad died when I was 15 and it took me many, many years to be able to express what I had gone through. So I decided to create Griefcast, a chance to talk, share and laugh about the weirdness of grief and death. But with comedians, so it's not that depressing, I promise. Each time I talk to a different comedian about their own personal experience of grief as we remember someone that they have lost along the way. Whether it was a long time ago or you've just joined the club, this is a chance to talk about the peculiar human process of death. Welcome to Griefcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please do subscribe to make sure you never miss a cheery chat about death. And if you do enjoy the show, please do rate and review it on iTunes as it helps other people find us. It's a tricky time of year for us griefsters, as Robert Webb so excellently called the club this week, because we are approaching Christmas, if you hadn't noticed. Everyone is banging on about good cheer, going out to parties or even just making family plans. And maybe that is making you feel like you'd like to tell everyone to piss off and get under a duvet for three days. So if it is, we hear you. This week, we are going to have a special episode of Griefcast to try and offer some support. I'm talking to grief psychotherapist Julia Samuels. Julia is the author of Grief Works, a brilliant book I've talked about on the show before, and she has been a grief specialist for over 20 years. She came in to talk to me about her experience of helping people deal with their loss. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to Griefcast. I'm joined today by grief psychotherapist, Julia Samuels. Morning. Good Very morning. lovely to be here. <laughs> Thank you for coming, Julia. Um, so, Julia, this is obviously a slightly unusual episode of the Greek cast because you're not a comedian. Well, the opposite. The, <laughs> no, you're, still, you're pretty funny. <laughs> I'm the walking dead person. <laughs> People see me and they think of death. Oh, really? A woman went up to Michael, the other, my husband, the other day and said, whenever I look at a box of tissues, I think of your wife. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's nice in a way. It means you're doing your job well. Yeah, it's probably not what I aim for. <laughs> no, <laughs> sadness, just the physical manifestation of sadness. That's nice. Um, but yeah, it's unusual because so you are a grief psychotherapist. So you specialise in treating people dealing with bereavement and grief. So we wanted to do, and ep- I wanted to do an episode, um, a bit more about the practical side and the sort of, I guess, the technical side rather than personal just stories. So that's why we have Julia on. So Julia... You're a grief psychotherapist. Why did you end up specialising in something which is obviously very hard to deal with? I mean, I'm sure all psychotherapy is hard to deal with, but you specialise in grief and bereavement. Is that all? You've always specialised in that. So I see actually people for anything, but oh, okay. my the thing I'm known for and the, the thing I do the thing I do most because yeah. I needed to do a bit of sex and drugs just oh, yeah, to sure. balance it. Otherwise, it's a bit too intense. <laughs> Oh, just nice. trauma and death. So and for you, sex and drugs is like the light. That's the light. <laughs> you must be like, oh, brilliant. They're just going to tell me about their heroin addiction. <laughs> Great. Actually, I don't do drugs, in okay. fact. I, but, I, you know, I do normal unhappiness. And I'm not, I'm saying it like it's funny, but it isn't funny. But It's okay. This is the place we can laugh about it. This okay. is, that's all right. all right. Yeah, I don't think our listeners mind if you laugh at things that seem very serious. When did you special start sort of going more into the grief Oh, so I started with grief straight away. Oh, really? Wow. So there are things that are kind of obvious that led me into it and things that are much more unconscious. So the, I think the unconscious thing is that my parents both had multiple significant losses, five of them. My mum, her mother, her father and her sister and her brother were all dead by the time she was 25. Oh, my Before goodness. she was even married. And my father, his father and brother. <gasps> And around oh. the house, we had these black and white photographs yeah. of people that they never spoke about. I knew nothing about so them. Didn't, I didn't know how... They didn't tell you anything? Nothing. Wow. And so there was, I think, growing up, there was a lot of unresolved yeah. grief that was just hidden. Wow. And I think unconsciously, that kind of affected me. So you must have become extremely skilled at knowing when people are not talking about grief. <laughs> If you, I mean, as a child, if you're watching your parents not talking about this huge thing, and then when a client comes in, do you do you feel like you recognise those 
signals. Signals in someone of like, oh yeah, there's something big you're not talking about. I think the thing that I'm good at is I'm one of five children, two sets right. of twins. I'm a twin and I've got twin oh sisters. Oh my goodness, that's incredible. My mum had five, or oh my dad, but he doesn't really count in this right. particular way. Yeah, yeah. He, my, they had five children in four years. <gasps> and so two sets of twins Two well. sets of twins. Your mum is amazing. Oh my God. She must have been exhausted. <laughs> she was, I think. But it meant that there was only so much attention she could give us. Yeah, of course. So I became very good at looking for signals. Right, yeah. I was very good at observing people's moods, their yeah. cues, what was going on as the youngest of five quite strong yeah. children. How did your mum lose... What happened to all of that side of the family? The so her brother was killed in the war. Oh, of her course, yeah. um, sister died of an asthma attack. Oh. Her mum died of cirrhosis and her dad died of cancer. So, but she, you know, I, did, I know very little about them. Wow. So how long have you been doing being a psychotherapist now? So I've been a psychotherapist 26 years. Wow. And has it got easier or does it still, are there still cases that break your heart and hurt and it's never easy yeah every time I meet someone new I wonder can I help this person mm. every time I hear a new story it kind of stabs you yeah um, I don't think I'd be any good if I was sort of armored and it became normal I mean yeah, some... that's the point of a psychotherapist is that you empathize and you care that's sort of the job isn't it yeah so care. I think when I'm at my best I'm kind of most open and most emotionally available. Yeah. I mean, sometimes I switch off. Yeah. Because you just do, because sometimes it's too hard. Oh, God, I can imagine, yeah. But everybody's different. Mm. So although there are there are things that you recognize that are very familiar and very normal, although they feel like madness, the key for me is building a working alliance, building a trusting relationship with this person mm. who doesn't trust life anymore, let alone anybody. Yeah and how I do that with this particular person. And that's, that's a, a real privilege. I think that's really interesting. You said, don't trust life. I think I definitely felt like that. I didn't trust life anymore. Is that very common then, that just because... And I had um, Jack Rook on the show the other week and he was saying exactly what I felt, which is like the tablecloth's been pulled. He was the same age as me when he lost his dad. So I was wondering, that was a teenage thing. Or is that just a common... They just Everyone just feels like... Something, something's been pulled from underneath them. Particularly with a very unexpected death and a yeah. death out of time, like with your dad. Yeah. And you're different to everybody else. Mm. The, the moment you hear the news, you know, grief starts at the point of diagnosis. So it starts when you hear someone you love is likely to die. Really? It, it changes yeah. again when the person dies. Mm. But at that moment when you're told that your dad is very ill and could die... Yeah. That shock of that and the trust that tomorrow is going to be the same as today yeah. and your belief system is broken yeah. because you, you no longer know what you can trust in anymore. Yeah. You know, if I can't even believe that my dad is going to be there to walk me up the aisle mm. and be there for me you know, into my adulthood, what else is going to happen? So everything feel, grief feels like fear. Everything feels frightening. And often fear brings anger and... You know, how do we find ways of expressing that that don't push everybody away? Because yeah. in a way, I think we're, we're kind of made 
very inconveniently. You know, when we're very happy and don't need people much, people are drawn to us because yes. we're smiling, we're loving, we're calm, and we attract attention and, mm. and people's friendliness. When we're really unhappy, when we're grieving, we say we're angry, we're shut down, or we're explosive, or we're erratic, it sends out signals and it sends body signals that mm. trigger in other people. And it's very hard for other people to sit with us yeah, and yeah. to weather it. So they either want to fix it, they want to make it better, so they say something unbelievably stupid, or they leg it. Yeah. So the ones that can sit with you and be with you and listen to you and give you a box of tissues, make you some soup, take you for a walk, maybe show you something funny on their, you know, on, the, on your phone to give you a kind of break from yourself, those are the ones that you love forever. Yeah, it's so true. Again, I've had, having had so many people on here, Kaylee. Kaylee Lewenny lost six members of her family over a year. Yeah. Bloody hell. Yeah. That's and, really bad. Yeah. And she was saying her best friend just sat next to her one night. And she said, I think it's it really stuck with me because she said, I was just staring. All I could do was stare at a wall. But at least I wasn't staring at a wall alone. <laughs> and I thought, oh, that's just, that's the true indication of friendship, just to sit next to someone. It is hard not to try and fix someone. I found that really hard. When my husband lost his dad, and then five years later he lost his mum, he was very close to, and my instinct was just like, let's fix this. Like, that's how can we, especially having been through grief myself, it was like, I'm, I'm the expert. Yeah, I'm the expert. I know what you do, I know what you've got to do, you've got to talk about it, you've got to do this. It's so hard not to want to fix someone, I think, because you feel so powerless. What, so, I mean, it's a big question, but what can people do when you are watching someone you love who's in pieces? And it, I mean, it is in pieces. That's what happens when someone grieves. They, they shatter and you have to very slowly watch them get put back together. But is there any, like, genuine scientific things they can do? Yeah, so the motivation to fix things mm. is the one of love and affection. Oh, yeah, it comes from a good place. <laughs> but that's the root of it. Yeah. And so it's how you use that that will make a difference. Right. The kind of three biggest things that help people is one, to acknowledge the level of their loss and their pain mm. and not to diminish it by trying to fix it, not exaggerate it by kind of over-dramatizing it, but let them tell you what it's like. But just to, first of all, by just saying... I'm so sorry. Yeah. And the biggest help when someone is bereaved, it, and it feels very lonely as well as shattering, is love. So when love dies, mm. the love of others is probably the single biggest predictor of a good outcome. Okay. So if someone's very alone already and someone dies, they don't get the support, they don't know how to support themselves. Mm. And so then they... You know, it's often the behaviours that you do to block the pain that do you harm, the things yeah. that you do to anaesthetise it, which can be drugs, it can be sex, it can be overwork, it can be anything to block it. And that means you stay locked in the grieving process. Mm. Um, and then the third thing is that we feel it physiologically. So mm. we feel it in our bodies. And so doing things that shift your body around, exercise, as unkind of glamorous as it is, yeah. is probably the other thing that really helps the most. And a combination of exercise and a meditation or some kind of relaxation, because it feels like fear, your whole body goes into a kind of hypervigilant mode. Mm, it's like yeah. you're on alert. Oh my God, I remember this being so on edge, like 
like yeah, the so you just yeah you feel like and and funny enough weirdly if anything does happen when you're in that you're really you react so quickly yeah, yeah. <laughs> like you know you're ready for war you're ready yeah <laughs> like if you see someone get knocked over you know like fall over or you're crossing the road and the car nearly comes i remember i might reflexes were like lightning because I was so ready <laughs> for anything which I quite enjoyed for a while being like super good at reacting to things so you have that startle reflex you, yeah. you're in fight or flight mode yeah but if you fly so if you exercise it tells your body you fly so it's that's there for a oh, purpose I see. so it literally goes it's like you ran away from the lion it's you've run right. away from the lion yeah wow so it releases the cortisol which is the alert one yeah and gives you the dopamine which is the calm down one which is your safe yeah. So it lowers your system. Because if you're hypervigilant all the time, mm. you can't receive good stuff. Yeah. Because your 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 kind of processing and emotional availability goes offline because you're only there for fighting or flight yeah, or flight. Yeah. So if you slow your system down, then you can both connect with yourself, find the words to say how you feel, mm. but also connect to others. You can take in what they're giving you and transmit what you're feeling. And that's the work of grief. You know, my book is called Grief Works. And it's yes, we talk about it a lot on the podcast. <laughs> I, I really recommend it because I think it's just very, it's very clear. I, that's what I like about it. It's very clear advice. <laughs> These are things that would work. Yeah, but it's psychological work. Processing is, is work in itself and it has its own process. But if you do the things that support you, it makes an enormous difference. And you know, we move in and out of grief. So at the beginning, it's completely all-consuming yeah. and we can't think about anything else. Gradually over time, it tends to come in like waves and hit you yeah. and then leave you. We were talking about it just last week. Of, <clears throat> I think the first year, you're just at sea. And people literally say that you're at, at sea, sea because you are completely, you said you're, you feel like you're drowning. And then slowly... So that first year... Yeah. You need to give yourself little lifeboats. Right. Oh, that's a nice way of saying it. Yeah. So you doing things that actively comfort you. Wow. So whether it's watching funny things, mm. even if you can't concentrate, um, gardening, cooking. I mean, that may be anathema to some people, having flowers, but actively doing things that you know comfort you. We all have our yeah. stuff. I mean, my stuff is watching funny stuff on telly with a cup of tea and a biscuit yeah. you know I and I associate that now with comfort yeah so when I do that my system goes oh oh yeah when you sit down cup of tea D dunking a biscuit think, yeah. oh yeah sorry but it's so hard I mean the things you're suggesting obviously are like healthy things to help yourself and it I think it's very hard to separate good healthy things and bad healthy things because I certainly know you know I know from friends and from myself eating two tubs of ice cream can make you feel great <laughs> or getting really pissed can make you feel you think oh well I feel better how do you how is it possible to sort of therapize yourself in a way and be like or do you just kind of know I know that drinking is not really comforting me it's just blocking it do you know what I mean it's hard no, to separate no, I, comfort from blocking I think the message that we tell ourselves is I am suffering so yeah. I deserve a treat yeah, yeah. I'm going to give myself a treat and the treat is more than naughty stuff. Yeah. It's like not doing your homework. Yeah. So it's more like, you know, masses of chocolate or ice cream or masses of drink. And I completely get that sense of giving yourself comfort. And mm. I think you need a treat. The downside of it 
is that all of those things affect your system physiologically. So they actually make you feel worse. You know, drink is a depressant. Food and mood, if you have masses of sugar, Mm, you crash. crash, And then you need more. So I don't think it's about, you know, being like Gwyneth Paltrow and only eating... (laughs) Clean eating. Clean eating or whatever. I think give yourself small treats. But it's also a kind of self-attack. Because when you're hurting like that, there's yeah. so much hurting inside. It's almost like, fuck it, I'm hurting so much, I might as well screw myself over. Yeah. I get pissed, I sleep with a stranger, I take some drugs, and then I'll really feel as show myself as bad as I feel myself to be. Yeah, and I think... And also, that's a dangerous cycle. Yeah, it's though. really dangerous. And I think also it can often be, it is, as people say, cry for help. Because you sort of, I remember certainly doing things and thinking, I hope someone tells me to not do this. But no one would. No one, no one does. <laughs> and so you're thinking, I don't, want to, I don't want to do this, but I'm doing it and I'm waiting for someone to go, I guess with me, it's probably waiting for a parental figure to be like, no, don't do that. But, you know... Well, I mean, that's what I was thinking as yeah. you were speaking, is that... It's in a way a call to the person that's died if it's your dad. Like, you fucking bastard, you've left me. (laughs) Definitely. So now you need to come and make me better. You know, you're my guardian angel. And he isn't there. Mm. And so then that feeds a kind of rage that you do it more and more to demonstrate you've left me. I'll show you you've left me. Yeah. Now I see what's happened to me. And it's the... I mean, I've spoken about this with my brother because it's the worst... Because you, you're so angry and you do something so stupid and then they're still not there. So it's even more sad because now you've done the stupid thing. And and you feel like shit for you days. Feel like, yeah, for days. It can take days if you've done a really bad move on yourself. I see people that have, can't get up for like two or three days after they've had a massive wow. binge. And then they have, you know, because grief hits your self-esteem. It hits your confidence. Cause not yeah. only just your trust in life, but in your capacity and ability to be yourself. I found that really interesting because I don't think I'd ever heard that before I read your book. And I definitely think it completely shattered my self-confidence. But I never, it sort of didn't occur to me that it would do that. If you see what I mean, it seems like grief's over there, your self-esteem's over there. Why would they be affected? Why are they affected, Julia, <laughs> to tell us? I think it's linked to that innate trust in life, which mm. affects your innate trust in yourself. If the person who's died is really significant, they are part of your self-structure. They're part of who you see yourself as. Or how you judge yourself against them as Uh, well. Yeah, I'm not like that. (laughs) They've, you know, like with your dad, he really loved you. He really Mm. got you. He knew who you were and he loved you as you were. Yeah. And so there's a sort of dad-shaped hole in you. I definitely felt that, yeah. My husband said the same thing about his mum. It literally feels like there's a hole like you feel like a the, big wind, black the wind hole. could go through you it's like there's something a chunk missing and that you know it's invisible and so no one sees it mm. but that hole can't not affect how you feel about yourself there's mm. a bloody great hole you're not you haven't got those secure foundations that you yeah. kind of you know when you're feeling well and happy it's like you've got this bouncy thing inside that there's a trampoline that you can you're resilient you mm. bounce back you can kind of manage you don't lose your temper when the train is cancelled you oh, kind of God, go and yeah. get a coffee when there's a big black hole inside the train's cancelled and it's like the world is against mm. you so then you chuck coffee then you have a beer then you have a cider then you're pissed and you miss the next train you know yeah. it, it creates a kind of chaos and so my message if you like is look after the hole don't yeah. beat the hole up. You can't fill the hole. 
Pain is the agent of change. Allow yourself to find a way of expressing that pain. And really, it's a kind of howl. Mm. You know, that howl is a... Is a is a you know a howl or a cry and yeah, ways of talking about the big, person. Big empty chasm of just ow. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, it's funny, isn't it? Because you said, I think the acceptance that you can't fill it takes a long time, because I think as a human who has agency over themselves, you're constantly thinking, well, there must like again, I'm a fixer, so I'm like, there must be something I can do. There must be. There must be some. You know, and for me, a special app. Yeah, an app or a book or a whole filling app course or a, you know, and for other people it's drink or food. I was like, it must be something, and that acceptance, like, nope, nothing. There's nothing. And, and I think the 21st century really doesn't help us. No, it really because makes you believe you can do anything. It means you can do, you know, with yeah. your phone, you can book an aeroplane to China. You can find out where you're walking in 10 yeah. seconds' time. You can have sex around the corner with a stranger. Yeah. You can call your food. So you kind of expect everything at the touch of a there button. There should be something I can do, yeah. And the permanence of death. Ugh. That brick wall that yeah. is, you know, you can't climb over it. You can't put, put a hole through it. You bash yourself against mm. it and the, the facing the reality of it is the first task and you know the other thing that I want to come through in my book is that we a bit like my parents generation you kind of think what you don't see isn't going to hurt you yeah but actually what you don't see tends to haunt you yeah because if you don't see the person after they've died or while they're dying you imagine it mm. and what you imagine is limitless yeah and probably much more frightening. You know, someone like you has imagination that can go. Oh God, yeah, my imagination is one of my one of my greatest great strengths and my worst nightmares because my overactive imagination can can kill me on a bad day of like what I can imagine is happening to people. Yeah, it's. I think maybe that's why I do write and perform because you're just it's a way of controlling it, yeah. a way of like just giving it something to do. <laughs> Go over there and draw, like rather than be. How am I going to die? How are the people I love going to die? Yeah, yeah. Won't it distracts yeah. you? Yeah, and it gives it a, a frame. Yeah, so that's definitely. much more manageable. Yeah, I mean, did you see your dad when he died? Yes, yeah, so we were um, in the room when he died. Yeah, so he was in the hospice. Uh, I think I have said this before, but so I bore you again, listeners. Um, so he was in the hospice. I, I can't remember how long he was in the hospice for. It's all a blur, but it must have been a week, and. That day, my mum said, we were going to see him every day. It was about a 10-minute drive. And she said, right, we're going to the hospice today. And I said, no, I don't want to go. Because I just had enough. I just thought, oh, you know what? I'm just, done with this. I just want a day off, yeah. basically. It was like, I just want to stay at home and watch telly. And she was like, you have to come. And she said it in a way of, you know, that mum way of like... Don't mess with me. Yeah, it's not really an argument here. And I remember Good thinking... Mom. Yeah, I remember thinking, oh, she's being a bit weird okay but obviously you still didn't want to acknowledge it and then that's that and we stayed there all day and we slept there that night and then he died the next morning so she obviously knew it was basically touch and go but I think I'd kind of stuck my head in the sand like I in my head gone well this is life now we go to the hospice every day this is what we're going to do for the rest of our life <laughs> you know, I hadn't really I hadn't envisioned envisioned an end point but did anyone say to you who's going to die in those words no, I don't think so. I think there was lots of, there's not long left. We don't know how long left there is, Cariad. It's touch and go. I think you might want to be there. I don't, um, I mean, ugh. my brother's four years older, so I often have to refer to him because I think I, he probably had more of a grasp. But I don't remember anyone saying he's going to die today. People wouldn't probably say he's going to die. Yeah. I mean, the, the other part of facing the reality 
that I think is incredibly important in families and mm. family systems. Because everybody, like you know, you and your brother, he's four years older. Everybody is different and their experience is different. Yeah, so different. But they all need the same story right. and they all need the same truth, however old they are. Mm. So even if you'd been six, you'd need to know. Because families that have open communication, that are told the truth, like your dad is going to die. Mm. We don't know when he's going to die, but he's very seriously ill and he isn't getting better. So he is going to die, we know, over the next days or weeks or months or whatever the, the prognosis mm. is. It helps you prepare. Yeah, actually, now thinking about it, my mum did say something because <laughs> my dad refused to accept he had a funeral to plan. And he was like, no, 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 it's fine. And my mum was like, you're go Pete, you're going to die. We need to talk about the funeral. Your mum's amazing. <laughs> She's amazing. She is truly She's amazing. Unusual. And I remember thinking, oh, oh, you know, I heard that phrase. So I definitely, I definitely wasn't, I definitely had got my, in my head, okay, this is, this is coming. But I think I then obviously didn't want to look at it. But yeah, I do remember it wasn't, I did appreciate I actually appreciated having a week in a hospice because it really, obviously... You have those memories. You go yeah. back and use those memories yeah. all the time, I'm sure. I mean, oh, maybe yeah, not so yeah. much now. No, at the top... And I'm when I speak to people on the podcast who are very, you know, in their two, three-year period, they are really torturing themselves over what happened and where they were. And it's hard to sometimes express it when you get to 20 years. You, you don't revisit it as, as much. You remember other stuff, but definitely those you first... You remember the happier stuff later. Yeah, but those first five years, you just go back to the death over and, and over, over and again. over. Everything. So my big cry to everybody is try and face as much reality as you can. Yeah. And remember, the kind of overarching thing is to try and ensure that you don't have regrets. Mm. So when you're thinking about making decisions... Imagine yourself in a year's time and looking back and looking back at what memory of yourself in relation to the person that you love you want to have. Yeah. And that will help inform you and actually support you because even if you regret it, you'll know that you made the best decision that you could at the time. Yeah. But basically you want to build as many memories of the person while they're dying that you will live off the rest of your life yeah. and you can record them, you can take photos... You can sit yeah. with them and do drawings. You recommend this in the book. Of, I thought it was quite interesting of, of taking a photo, especially if there's children involved, of taking a photo of the dead body. So is that really just to, it helps the brain accept, accept the reality? Wow, because I was really and I, shocked. And by I that. suggest children being seeing the person yeah. that's dead. Yeah, I'm definitely. I'm really glad that we were there. And you it's know, it's scary when you're prepared properly. Your no, mum, you, know, you had yeah. a good mum. Yeah, it wasn't, and it wasn't scary being in the room when he died. It was not. I felt very privileged. I felt like, oh, I'm really glad we're here. I mean, I was a bit, you know, obviously, fifteen is a bit older than than a sort of child's child. But you think that's that really helps children in the I long do. run. I mean, I hear so. I see adult children whose parents or siblings died when they were say seven or six or eleven, and when they were excluded, which was done with the intention of protecting yeah. them, they now feel angry mm. because they don't have a memory they don't have any recall and there's this big space there's, there's a black hole of the person's died yeah. but also there's no kind of film in their mind that makes sense of it yeah it's true we talk about this a lot as well like the narrative and you need that the you need end a narrative. of that you need the end of that story you need the story yeah but you need to have been part of the story yeah. if you're a significant if you're a child or a sibling or a because uh, it can't, even though it's done for protection, it can't help but feel like exclusion. Even though, of course, 
as an adult, you can understand, oh, well, like, we didn't want you to be upset. But as a, as a child, you, you maintain that child's feelings of, oh, well, people didn't want me to know. They didn't want me. They didn't want me. That's all I think you hear. But also, it's a kind of madness <clears throat> yeah. to think that you can stop your child being yeah, upset when true. their parent dies yeah. or their sibling dies or someone important. You can't stop people being upset. Yeah. It's not in anybody's bloody gift. So it makes me so angry in a way. I understand it's a bit like fixing that people do it from love and affection, but it's bonkers. You, mm. If you actually ever thought about it, you know you can't stop someone being upset. <laughs> But it's like you said, there's this whole, I mean, it's not just now, the history of humanity is to avoid pain at any cost and avoid people you love being in pain. Whereas doing this podcast is, you know, really, obviously, (laughs) reminded me, everybody You can't not have pain. Yeah, everybody does. Everybody suffers. Everyone knows someone deeply wonderful who dies. And then will they die themselves? Like, it's not... Everyone will be bereaved. Yeah. At some point in their life, even if they're just... You know, someone who doesn't have a partner, who doesn't have yeah. many siblings, they will all have someone they knew that died. Mm. And they will all at some point face their own death. So my thing is, talk about it now. Talk yeah. about it to the people that you're closest to. Talk about how you want your funeral, who you want to be there, you know, what your fears are. Because after you've died, all the statistics show that people that have had those conversations, like your mum forced your dad to have, yeah. they do fare do better. It said. doesn't <laughs> stop the pain. Yeah. But it does stop the pain becoming a kind of psychological injury. Okay. So a lot of the protection can then become mental illness if it hasn't been properly properly mm. dealt with at the time. So is that what you often encounter, people who just... It, for some reason it hasn't been dealt with and it's it's showing itself in different forms it's of everything. mental illness. You know, with young people it's often they don't form relationships, they yeah. don't have partners, they are very lacking in confidence, they feel a lot of fear mm. because their imagination has led them into these spaces that they, they don't have the narrative, they don't have the story. Yeah. And, you know, it's not everybody, nothing is everybody. Some no. people, you know... Someone listening will say, well, my dad died when I was seven. I didn't see him and no one talked to me about it and I'm fine. And I hope that's true. Yeah. I only see the people that suffer. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the positive ones aren't knocking on your door going, no. hey, I'm fine. I just wanted to I tell, tell you, you I'm fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And again, during this podcast, I've really discovered that everyone's so different. Everyone, Everyone's grief is completely different. But like you said, they all, I think that's really interesting. They all need the same thing. Because I can, you know, even I was talking to Jack Rook, whose dad died when um, he was 15, same as me, very sudden, same as me. He was, you know, just GCC time, same as me. But some of the stuff he said, I was like, oh, my God, absolutely. And other stuff, I was like, oh, no, no, I didn't feel like that. It's obviously it's so dependent on your family dynamic. And, and being a boy and a girl. Yeah, that's true. Boys yeah. are very different to girls. Yeah, and men was, are different to women in grief. And he was very, yeah. So how are men and women or people who identify as men and women uh, different in grief? What's the difference, do you think? Well, again, it, it's not everybody, but the tendency is that women tend to focus on the loss and right. really want to talk about it and mm. grieve and emote. Men tend to want to get on with life, find answers and go forward. So when a partner dies, the kind of expression is that women grieve and men replace. <laughs> Which I, I, you talk about this in your book and I, it really made me laugh because my mum's never remarried. 
But we've known people who, like, the husband's lost the wife. And, yeah, it's quite common. Within the first year. Within the first year, they've rem- or two years, they've remarried. Whereas the women we know it's often have never remarried or it's been a very long time. Which it's it's such a stereotype, but there is there is truth in it, and the stats the stats stereotype. Yeah, um, and I thought it was interesting. You said if a man doesn't remarry, it can actually affect him more than a woman. Like statistically, that's true. Yeah, because he's very men are quite bad at self care, yeah. and they're quite bad at socialising. Well, especially, I guess, older generations definitely obviously are more traditional, and the woman would have yeah looked after, done that, kept the house clean, bought the food, and all of that. Yeah traditional female roles yeah yeah so that must be really hard when a man loses his caregiver in a way it is hard that when I work with couples um, who have a child that die Mm. that causes real tension because Mm. she never stops crying Mm. doesn't want to have sex often some women actually go for sex kind of instinctively it's a it, it can go either way but is totally absorbed and uh, immersed in the child that's died. And the father often wants to get on, he wants to go back to work, he wants to have another child, or Mm. he wants to look into how you can have another child, or move house, or do something that can get them out of it. And that can cause a real clash. Mm. You know, he, he thinks she's a kind of wet rag, and she thinks he's a selfish bastard. Yeah. And so what I do with them as a couple, I explain it that it's normal, it's how they're wired, but also to help them do a bit of the other together. So she can help him do a bit of the emoting and grieving and talking about the child. And he can help her, like, get her out, distract her, you know, have a break from the pain, go for walks together, Mm. do stuff together. And that helps kind of rebalance the relationship otherwise it's like a seesaw and she's at the bottom of the seesaw holding all the pain and he's the top completely powerless and that you know that doesn't help the relationship I can't imagine what it must be like talking to a couple you know everyone says there isn't a hierarchy in grief and and in truth you can't kind of measure pain but I think the the idea of a child dying Mm. is even to think about unbearable and there's something about you know, the death of the future yeah. that you expected. And, I mean, talk about not having trust in life mm. when a child dies. Yeah. You know, it's devastating. But, uh, yeah, there's something about the life unlived that is, it's not just about grief. It's just even if you, I think even if you've experienced no grief at all, there's a deep human pain that goes, oh, no, I, no, <laughs> that's and not that's, okay. that's often why they don't get the support either, because yeah. it's so unbearable to think about that people tend to kind of move away from them. So, because you can't fix that. No one's going to come in and be like, "Hey, I'm going to like help you sort out your washing." I think that will make you cheer you up. Like, no, you're. I guess the instinct with friends must be like, "Oh, just don't bring it up. Don't say yeah. anything." If I if I'm going to talk about it, I'm going to remind you, yeah. and you're not going to want to be reminded. And that's like, I mean, as if you're going to be forgetting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true. It's like, well, I haven't forgotten. Yeah, that's funny, isn't it? It's people, all you think about. People have said that to me, even about my dad. Like, I do, oh, I don't want to bring it up. You're like, well, it, you know, in a way, yeah, it's there. They like it. Yeah. People like it. I mean, one of the difficult things when a child dies, if it's a youngish child, whether it's a stillbirth or, you know, a, a slightly older child that's that's lived and then dies, is being sort of in the school gates with other mums and healthy children, looking at them, looking at someone who's Mm. pregnant, seeing someone who's just had a child, and how those mums are with you. Mm. 
because often at the beginning they kind of say sorry but they're very awkward but then they leave you standing there and then they're very cheery and talking about their summer holidays and it's like ah yeah you know it's it changed your whole perception of life and who you're with and how you can be with them is changed because they're now living the life you had and you don't have anymore yeah and you will never have you know, even if you've had six children and one died, you don't feel the same person anymore. Yeah, of course. It changes you. And I was thinking about that with today's, the day after the Grenfell Tower Yeah, so we, they had the fire this week. I mean, it's just one of those years, isn't it? Where it's like, what news? But yes, this awful, awful fire that happened in West London this, yeah, yesterday. And I was thinking, you know, we've had the, the London Bridge bomb and the Manchester attack. I was thinking that, you know, how psychologically all of us are always told, you know, don't let your imagination run away with mm. you. Don't think about frightening things. Uh, keep it in the day. Manage your day because then you will allow yourself to be confident and happy. And that kind of works until there are these devastating incidents mm. that come completely out of a clear blue sky. And which are night, they're nightmare situations. They are total yeah. nightmare. They're the, you know, like your happy day, mm. taking your daughter to a concert in Manchester. Your happy days, I talked to someone, you know, you just finished work as a medical professional and you're having at last your pasta and there's a London Bridge attack or you're just asleep in your bed and oh. there's this fire. So... And all of us look at that. And I, I was thinking, you know, m your first thought is, oh, my God, that's so awful. Mm. And then your second thought is, oh, my God, do I know anybody? Mm. Is someone I love there? And then if you're lucky enough that you don't, you feel guilty that you're relieved yeah, that it's yeah. not you. And then I think people just freeze. Yeah, it's really hard. Because it's, it? you can't make yourself, it's so unbearable and so frightening and so terrorizing mm. I think we have to switch mm. and then some people obsessively read the news so yeah. they go through their their all their um, I think apps. especially I had this with the Boston Marathon attack do you remember there was the mm. was a, a yeah, yeah. attack I happened to be on Twitter when it happened and I've learned now just to get off the phone immediately but there was the first time I was I was like oh what's why is everyone talking about Boston my dad ran a lot of marathons, so I was like, oh, there's a something about a marathon. So I was sort of interested, and then I saw, and I started seeing pictures, and I just couldn't get off the phone because it was like I was there because I'd literally You were been, in it. And I was reading the same reactions as everyone else, going, oh, my God, is this true? No, no way, hang on. Oh, no, hang on, there's a link. It's not true, guys. Oh, my God, it is. And you were completely in it. And so, yes, with every other awful thing, and there has been plenty of them, I think it, I don't know if you would advise this, but I think get off the phone is and get off the internet Unless, obviously, you know someone that's saying you, you want, you know, you need to get information. Otherwise, I think there's not a lot it's going to do for you, is what I try and tell myself. It's not going, it's not going to change what happened. And I think you, if you're now with live video footage oh, and God, live streaming, footage, yeah. it, you can get secondary trauma. Mm. So I think we, I think there are two things. One is it, it terrorises you and that freezes you. And actually, if you're going to do something helpful, you're not then in the position to be able to do it. Mm. So, you know, the other side of terrible things is that you see these incredible acts of humanity, oh, well, of people risking their lives, yeah. of neighbours coming in, bringing their clothes, their food. And so whilst you're kind of terrorised and you think these incredible acts of brutality and murder, how can that happen? 
on the other side of it, you see these incredible acts of kindness and mm. bravery and courage and love. And I guess we need to acknowledge, it's a bit like knowing that you're going to die. We need to acknowledge that life isn't safe. Yeah. We don't have control. And yet we can't kind of live, immerse ourselves in that terror every day because then we won't live our life. And like you said, it's really both those things can coexist. When we fully acknowledge and know that there's pain in the world and that we're going to die, it does actually free us to value our days more. Mm. And that thing of being grateful. So this yeah. morning and last night, I woke up with my kind of gratitudes. I do it every day and it helps me when I do You know, my perspective on life is very, very warped. I only see on here terrible stories yeah. like 20 hours a week. So I have to do lots of stuff to keep me on the straight and narrow and <laughs> keep my sense of humor. And my, you know, my gratitudes were simple. It was that, you know, I woke up, that, you know, my husband was there and we had mm. breakfast and that I was alive and well. And you, in a way, when other people are suffering, you feel guilty, but actually it's also good to acknowledge it. Yeah. I think I'm going to send you a link that you can show of how to talk to children about frightening events. Yes, because that must be just... How do you so all the children that? in the country now will be seeing these images yeah, yeah. and from all the attacks in the last few weeks. And um, again, it's about telling them the truth. Mm. It's about allowing them to tell you their worries. It's allowing them to... Uh, how to support them, not to suppress them, not to tell them not to worry. Mm. But there's a whole link of kind of things that you can do. So we I will, think that's useful. Yeah, put that up and, and tweet it and everything. What what can you do? Because I, I feel very guilty about this, but with, with the attacks and this awful thing, if you are someone who suffered bereavement, it does bring up stuff. And then I think then you feel guilty because you're like, oh, well, my bereavement is nothing, nothing compared to what this is going on. But it does bring up your, your feelings. Your Especially, you know, there was a kid on the radio talking about she couldn't find her parents oh. and then your parents saying that, you know, couldn't, couldn't find, find their kids. Sure. And I think, you know, now I'm a mother and having lost my dad, I feel so much stronger, I guess, than I would have done. I'm like, oh God, I know how that, I know how you feel, I know how you feel. So how can you sort of look after yourself when these awful things happen? Which sounds very selfish because obviously there's people with great suffering, but you also need to survive. So you can't not be affected by it. Yeah, yeah. A new loss will always be bring back previous losses so that it goes to the same place mm. and you know your body remembers your body holds the score so your body is responding faster than your mind yeah yeah so it triggers oh, that definitely. whole my whole body system. yesterday was like <gasps> yeah i yeah, felt it i was yeah. like oh god oh god oh god so it's the same things mm. doing things that calm your system down taking exercise doing a relaxation getting hugs from people that you love mm consciously giving yourself positive treats yeah. but also allowing yourself to express it find ways of talking to people or writing it down yeah. you know journaling is really good write down your fears express them when you suppress them they just come back and haunt you mm. they come out sideways you know you end up fighting with someone on the bus or you you know someone that you love so you need to find a way of expressing them some people do it by speaking by singing by being a comedian <laughs> others by writing 
but you need to find a way of voicing it or not voicing it, expressing it. Yeah, it, I mean, it's funny. I was talking about this the other day. Like, is there a non-creative way of expressing? Because I always feel like my advice is like, write or sing or do an improv class. And I feel bad because what if you're someone who's like, I don't like doing those things. Is there something, I guess it's just taking a walk, like you said, or but it seems like all the, I mean, I would say this, I work in the arts. All the antidote to things are all very creative and they're all about bringing, creating something new in the face of a loss. And I was like, is well, there I a... think writing doesn't have to be creative. That's true, yeah. I mean, when I talk to people feel. about journaling, it, I say don't, it doesn't have to be sentences. Okay, who cares yeah. about the grammar or the words you use? Just find words. It's the going inside, finding a word to describe what's going on inside and finding a way of putting that down on paper mm. or words to speak to someone that releases it you every time you do that you incrementally adjust a little bit more to the reality that this person has died mm. and as you do that it frees you a little bit more to live again to trust again to love again it helps you rebuild your life you know often lighting a candle yeah even if you're not religious, lots of people I see I, yeah. find churches very, very yeah. calming. They go and light a candle or they go and listen to evening mass. Mm. Is it evening mass? Even song. Even that, song. We, we both don't have a clue. Who I'm not religious. Yeah. I'm not particularly religious. My family were not particularly religious, although we did go to church in that classic church from the way. Mm. And wherever I am in the world, if there's a church, I'll go in and light a candle. And I don't know why I'm doing it. And my husband, who's a complete, hardcore, militant atheist, was like, why are you doing it? And I was like, it just makes me feel better. Yeah. That wherever I am in the world, I've lit a candle. It but does I something about it. makes me feel like... It's uh, meaningful. Yeah. So, it's I mean, really a weird. lot of people who aren't religious will still pray to something yeah. when things go wrong. Like, oh, my God, please help me. Mm. Even if they have no formalized religion. And there's something about churches or synagogues or mosques that hold, they have a, a sense of people's humanity mm. and footsteps in time and I think buildings, lots of rituals. Yeah, and buildings are affected. So you can't help, especially when you go to, you know, the big cathedrals or like you said, synagogues or mosques all over the world. Those bricks and that concrete or have that held. have held everyone's hopes and spirituality. spirituality. So I find, yeah, even if you're not religious, there's some, I mean, I'll, and some churches are better than others, let's all yes. be honest. <laughs> there's some you go into and you're like, whoa, this is the quietest, coldest, but not in that horrible, cold, calm place yeah. I've ever been to. Those big cathedrals like yeah. Wells Cathedral oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. is an amazing feeling of yeah. and you feel like the pilgrims came here you know five six hundred years ago it matters doesn't it it yeah. shouldn't in in your it's head calming. it's like oh what does it mean but it's like of course it means something that i think it gives you perspective mm. that people have been there before you they've died life has gone on yeah. and i think there is something meaningful about lighting a candle it is something about a light in the dark yeah about a place to remember that's a focus so one of the other things i talk about in the book is having a focus for your grief so mm. it could be that you cook your the person that's died favorite recipe or you wear their watch or you have a necklace that you can touch so there are touchstones to memories mm. because how we grieve is by remembering it's not by forgetting so those are non that's a non-creative yeah, yeah. way just to have something that they had and just keep it near wear you. their t-shirt sleep yeah. in their pajamas um, and not be afraid. I think for years I was quite afraid of his stuff. And then 
yeah, I've got like this disgusting glass mushroom he bought me on my desk, which is really, but it's, I sort of realized I've carried it round and round and round. And then suddenly I was like, oh yeah, he bought me that. And I think, yeah, it's just some, like you said, those touchstones of to not be afraid. Yeah, sorry, because I was afraid of his stuff for a while, but something he bought me seemed like a safe. Safer. Yeah, a little bit safe. And the other things are memory boxes or memory Especially for children, I guess that must be huge. Huge. So they have their glass case or their bracelet or and cards they were sent and flowers they were sent. And to begin with, it might be they go into the memory box all the time. As years go by, it might be they go on their birthdays Mm. or the anniversary of the death. And it's this kind of safe place that you can go to and you can do it in your own time. Mm. And it's familiar, but it puts you in touch with the person that's died. I know we talked about this when I did your podcast of like terrible things people have said. Yeah. So just as like a top 10 or top five things not to say, if you're listening to this and you're not part of the club, congratulations. I'm really pleased for you. (laughs) Um, What like what would you avoid saying? I know we talked about this for like... um, I know how you feel. I know how you feel. Do you think is that a really bad one? I know how you feel. Depends... Is it okay if their dad's died and your dad's died? <laughs> you still can't know how Oh, uh, yeah, I guess so, yeah. Oh, sorry, everyone, I've said that too. <laughs> <laughs> or I, I try and say, I know, I, I know how you feel, but obviously it's very different. Yeah, well, that's fine. Yeah, yeah. Or you, what was it you were saying to me? Um, like, it's what they would have wanted, or he's watching He's in a better place. He's in a better place, yeah. God only takes the good ones. Oh, God, yeah, that is gross, isn't it? That's really gross. Yeah. Uh, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Mm. All the stuff that tries to fix it, and yeah, but in I some way diminishes. Fixing, yeah. Oh, there's so many. I mean, with babies and children, it's don't worry, I'll have another one, or thank goodness you've already got five or oh, three God, or yeah. one. Or, oh, I hate it when it's referred to like sort of angel. I found that really creepy as well, like little angels. Or even my dad is like, well, he's resting, or, you know, he's in a... In yeah, a better place. In a better place, or anything... I suppose I found it weird when people sort of talk about that because I go, you're not, you don't decide where people go. <laughs> like, You're not God. If there is a God, it's not you. Mm. So you don't know where he's going. If you believe in that system, how can you know what his true heart and soul was? So I found it sort of very presumptuous. So yeah, any of those kind of cliches, I guess, is just try and avoid. And just, I think, essentially, if we just boil it down to one thing, it's just listen, isn't it? It's listen. It's just listen. And being kind. Yeah. Oh, acts of kindness are so important, aren't they? And be there for the... If they're, you know, you know whether you're a, a really good friend or a more distant friend, but if you're a really good friend, be there for the long haul. Mm. So not just the first six weeks or three months. I mean, there's this thing that people assume that, you know, you're slightly better after the first six weeks than three months you're quite a lot better and then by the year you're kind of done mm. and actually it's the reverse you, the pain really kicks in in about 10 to 12 weeks because your numbness begins yeah, to fade yeah and that first anniversary is you know mm. it's like oh it's the worst it's really bad and the second year can be really difficult or it can be a bit better it just i mean it is very individual but this is a lifelong process mm. it's again it's this thing of you know it must be tw- how many years since you're So it'll be 20 next year. So 20 we just years. had our 19th anniversary in April. So you're the perfect <clears throat> example of someone who has r- really built your life. You know, you've got a great career, you've got a baby, you've got a husband. And remembering your dad, talking about your dad, the fact mm. that he died that it 
when you were 15 is a big part of you. It hasn't defined you. No, it hasn't destroyed you. No. But it's shaped you. Yeah. And he will always be part of you. And I'm sure you talk to him in your mind and he mm. advises you and he, you know, or tells you you're well, being we have an idiot. Well, we have rows in our minds still, yeah. <laughs> Which is brilliant. So it, it, and that isn't really understood that the relate, although the, the relationship is radically different mm. that he's died, he's not here physically, the relationship continues. And, you know, my message in my book is it's supporting you to kind of allow yourself to feel the pain to accept his death, that he's not here anymore, but also to support yourself to continue in the relationship with him mm. and that that will never die. Yeah. And, you know, you'll tell your daughter about him. Um, she will kind of know him through the stories that mm. you tell her. And that's really important. And that's healing. And that's yeah. how you heal and go forward rather than kind of get broken and don't really go forward but stay very stuck. Yeah. Julia, thank you so much. The book is called Grief Works by Julia Samuels. And your website is www.griefworks.co.uk. And on it, I have lots of links to other websites where you can get support for yourself. My eight pillars of strength, how to support yourself and lots of good stuff. Yeah, so there is there is help, and you can just look on a website if you're feeling like I don't actually want to talk to anyone, which I know a lot of people feel, especially at the beginning. So you can just have a glance. You don't have to click on anything. You can just click and then close it if that's all. But it is there for you, Juliet. Thank you so much for coming on Griefcast. It was a real pleasure. Thanks, Karen. You can buy Julia's book Grief Works at all good bookshops and she's also a patron of the charity Child Bereavement UK. They are an amazing charity helping kids cope with death and well worth a look if you need some help or advice at childbereavementuk.org. Thank you for listening. You can follow us on Twitter at The Griefcast or Instagram at The Griefcast and you can email us thegriefcast at gmail.com. Music is provided by the Glue Ensemble and the show is produced by Kate Holland. 